0: personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: There are moments in life that are so special that you have to capture them and save them forever. They are one of those once-in-a-lifetime events, like your baby's first steps, the first time you bring your family pet home, or your daughter's first dance performance. With iPhone 15 Pro, more storage means you don't have to delete anything that can become a lasting memory one day. And it's important to be able to share these moments with family members who weren't there to see them in person. Store more, share more. Connect with iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T. Get iPhone 15 Pro on AT&T and get an iPad and Apple Watch for 99 cents per month each. AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Limited time offer. Requires 0% APR 36-month agreement on each. Well-qualified customers. Other terms and restrictions apply. See att.com slash iPhone for details. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hey welcome to stuff to blow your mind my name is Robert
4: lamb and I am Christian Sager. Hey Robert I got a question for you. Let's say you want to pick up a paper clip but it's just it's giving you a really hard time you know how sometimes paper clips they it's difficult to get your fingers around them and pick them up off of the surface that they're on.
1: What is paper <laughs> what what are paper clips?
4: You know the little metal metal bendy thingies ah yes. So so now, let me ask you this. You're having a hard time picking up this paper clip. Would you cut your finger open, put a magnet in there, suture it back up
1: to make it easier to pick up that paper clip? Probably not, because that, that does not sound like I'm making the process any easier. Yeah. But it is kind of in human nature, it's, the same way that we we try and vacuum up uh, something, and if the vacuum cleaner is not picking it up, we will pick the object up, look at it, and then place it back on the carpet, and then give it another go right. with the vacuum. <laughs> right, yeah. Technology yeah, yeah.
4: must succeed. It is kind of like that, yeah. So uh, that's what we're talking about today at its very basic <laughs> form. We're going to be talking about biohacking in the present, on the road to transhumanism. Yeah. We'll explain what all that means. That might have just been a bunch of gibberish to you just now if you're unfamiliar with these movements. But that's a real thing. People are really implanting magnets in their fingers, uh, and they pick up paper clips and bottle caps with them, but that's not really just why they're doing it. We'll, we'll talk about more about that later.
1: Yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna look at some individuals who are either, in some cases, pioneers of transhumanism, individuals who are, who are going out there Hacking their bodies, uh, upgrading their bodies with yeah. technology, as well as individuals who are kind of harbingers or even prophets of transhumanism who are, who are engaging in these acts, uh, uh, d- to sort of comment on where we are and where we can go with our technology. And along the way, we're also going to define what transhumanism is, discuss some of the different approaches to transhumanism, the different uh, uh, philosophies and mindsets that uh, that entail it, as well as a, a general proposed checklist for how we might know when we have become transhuman uh, as a society. Exactly,
4: yeah. And so, you know, I think a lot of you out there, again, like, if you haven't heard of this before, you've probably got some pop culture touchstones that I'm sure Robert and I are going to be referring mm-hmm. back to throughout the episode. But, like, for me, uh the first one I think of is uh, American Mary, the horror movie. Uh, which you've seen, right? Yeah. Uh, by the Sasuka sisters in which, uh, you know, there's a lot of body modification going on, but the body modification is sort of leading toward something more than human, right? Uh, also, I mentioned this, uh, in our, uh, summer reading episode. The graphic novel Junction True is about stuff like this. Uh, Warren Ellis, a lot of his comics and prose work is based on this stuff like Black Summer, Dr. Sleepless, Desolation Jones, uh, and especially trans-metropolitan, are about uh, sort of moving towards a transhumanist future and what the ethical, I guess, conflicts and repercussions of that would be. And then for me, there's this game, it's a role-playing game called Eclipse Phase, and I have been in love with it since I first read the book of it. And I actually played it one time with Joe McCormick, our oh, co-host. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and basically the idea is you build your sort of transhumanist character that exists in a far future along the lines of the the philosophies that we're going to present today.
1: You know, well, you know, this is of course uh, this idea of just upgrading the body with cybernetic parts. You do see this in a number of different. Uh, role playing, um, scenarios as yeah. well as video games where you're, yeah. you know, you need to upgrade your character. Well, get a chip for this, a chip exactly, for that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Like Fallout. I play Fallout
4: a lot and there's mm-hmm. plenty of, uh, uh, biohacking that goes on in that. And bi- Bioshock is essentially a biohacking game. Uh, but those are science fiction. Today, we're going to really try to focus in on the reality of this stuff. What's actually going on? How close are we to doing this? What are the current benefits of it?
1: Yeah, the the, the, the science fiction examples are, are are key too because those serve as you know as kind of avatars of what is possible. Yeah, um, and uh, and and in any of these ideas we discuss here today, they're not they're not too far removed from the sci fi visions that at least partially inspire them.
4: Yeah, I agree. Uh, and I want to kick things off with a quote that I found during the research. Uh, which is from a pretty well-known biohacker who goes by the name Anonym. Uh, and she says bodily health takes a big F off second seat to curiosity when she's referring to her own biohacking. And we're going to talk a lot more about her own biohacking, but this is the kind of philosophical ethos we're talking about here. Very mm-hmm. DIY approach, and they're less worried about their health and more about sort of the innovation The curiosity.
1: Yeah. Claiming their body, saying, this is, this is my form. And if I want to augment it, if I want to upgrade it, that is what I'm going to do. Health comes second. Yep.
4: So, okay. You're out there saying, I don't know what you guys are talking about at all. What is transhumanism? Well, the basic premise is something like this, right? We can improve being humans through technology and science and we're basically taking evolution into our own hands. Right. Now, those of you who have listened to our episode on the philosophy of cyborgism, uh, this is going to sound familiar, right? It, they, they touch on each other. There's a nice big Venn diagram of transhumanism and cyborgs.
1: Yeah. And, and, and a lot of it touches into this area, too, where, you know, essentially human evolution has has, all, has long been altered or even stunted by our culture, by, by just the way yeah. that we live as individuals now. Natural selection doesn't quite work the same way anymore. So this is the idea that the next phase of human evolution is one of largely self-guided technological scientific uh, achievement. Now, it, as we'll discuss, exactly how that breaks down varies greatly. And it runs the gamut from like fully semi-android cybernetic Futuristic beings yeah uh, you know that are essential essentially like technological angelic beings, to more sort of near future but sometimes lofty ideas about just simply making society better, making our world better, kind of right. going after that Star Trek esque Gene Roddenberry inspired uh, utopia ideal. Yeah, and this is you know what this is a good point where I
4: want to throw out a plug for you. Oh, uh, which is that you last week published a piece on How Stuff Works now that was an experiment in looking at a transhuman cyborg future. Uh, specifically along the lines of space travel as we discussed in our cyborg episode. And it was called Silba Dreams of Earth. And it was, uh, basically, it was a great short story about, uh, tra- a transhuman or a post-human, I guess, mm-hmm. on Jupiter, uh, thinking about what life was like on Earth.
1: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. thank you. That one was a lot of fun to put together and definitely, uh, I spun that off of ideas that we discussed here on yeah. the podcast. Well, I think if anybody who's listened to
4: those episodes or this episode and you like that stuff, go check that out. Go look for Robert's. Uh, piece, which the Silba Dreams of Earth is the title of the short story. But what's the title of the article that's coming It's, um, placed it's under?
1: a question about, uh, what's our transhuman future going okay. to be like? Uh, okay. I'll make sure that we link to it on the landing page uh, for this episode. Yeah, you should. Cause it's great and it's really connected
4: to what we're doing here.
1: Yeah, the, the thought experiment thing is pretty interesting. Um, former, uh, co-host Julie Douglas also did one and, uh, and you've been invited to. Uh, I have. Yeah,
4: I haven't thought up of one yet. I think Julie's was something about like, what would life be like if we were Crawling all the time. Yeah,
1: if we were still sort of like quadrupeds. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So it's an interesting one. Has some cool uh, illustrations. So hopefully we'll see more and more of these from uh, members of the House Stuff Works. Uh, yeah, team. I'm
4: going to try to take a stab at it one of these days. Uh, the thing about transhumanism, though, that I want to go back to: this isn't exactly new, right? For a long time, people have sought out ways to change their bodies, in particular, extending the human life. Right. We've talked about this before with our uh, episodes on Egyptian burials mm-hmm. or, or just the practices there. Uh, transhumanists, though, they're not just interested in being immortal. That's part of it. <laughs> but uh, what about things like, for instance, adding technology to your body so you have different senses or maybe learning how to be telepathic by having science and technology connect you to another human being? That's the kind of stuff we're going to be talking about today. Now there's three categories according to our How Stuff Works article on transhumanism. I think we're gonna see a little bit more than this today though, but help me out. There's the longevity one, which we primarily see nowadays through cryonics, the idea of, you know, freezing your body basically, uh, so after you die, so in a far future where there's, uh, you know, technology that would be able to cure whatever you've got.
1: Well, I would say that's, that's one Version, yeah. but certainly um, a, a lot of the work going into this, particularly the work of Aubrey de Grey, revolves around this idea that, that death is something we can we can, we can overcome. Death. Right, we yeah. just have to take we have to take death, divide it up into the various uh, uh, approachable problems, and then tackle each of those problems individually. Exactly, uh, in order to. Um, Well, defeat death sounds a little lofty, but at least prolong human life to where the average individual will live at least a century. Yeah. The second category
4: is becoming a what they call super well being. And that's basically guaranteeing that you have the best traits so that you feel the best possible way that you can and you can exist in the best way that you can within your environment.
1: This is an area where and arguably there's a lot of uh scientific arrogance here yeah. because the idea here is hey if you let science and technology take care of it we got your well-being you're <laughs> going to be happy yeah. uh as if and and I don't want to totally discount that argument but you really get into this Th- this clash between science and every other discipline out there that has some approach to human well-being and human happiness. Be it yeah. spiritual or philosophical or, um, you know, pharmacological. You. pharmacological, in pharmacological. In this case, well, that's yeah. gonna, that's gonna go beyond science's team, right? So. Yeah,
4: mm-hmm. right, yeah. Uh, and then the third one would be super intelligence, which I didn't find too many examples of in the, uh, the sort of practical examples that we're encountering nowadays. Right. But, but the idea here is essentially either through genetics or technology augmenting our brains, so we're smarter or have a capacity for more memory.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say we're we're already seeing a, like a soft shade of that yeah. in terms of our um, just constant use of. Cloud-based devices That's, and, and constant yeah. wireless connection. Like it's it's not a direct augmentation of the brain, but we're 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 making sure that we're we're almost painfully attached to the infinite knowledge. Oh of the yeah,
4: web. yeah, yeah. Right. Like when we're watching a TV show and mm-hmm. you're like, hmm, I don't know who that actor is. What other things has he been in? You just whip out your phone. Right. Less than five minutes, you figured it
1: out. Yeah, not knowing is no longer acceptable. Yeah. <laughs> Used to, there was a day when you, when you realized, hey, I wonder who that, that character actor is. You just didn't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You, you, you could maybe go research it tomorrow, but right now you're just, or you would talk go. to other human beings about it. Hey,
4: who's that guy yeah. that's on that? Pete Holmes has a really good bit about this. Uh, we're basically like we've, we're losing like our social connections because phones. Oh yeah. Yeah. He does have answers. a great bit on this. That's yeah. right.
1: I've, I've heard, I've heard that bit.
4: Um But so a lot of people equate transhumanism with the singularity, right? That eventually it's going to lead to the singularity. And, but what we, what we mean by that is the point where artificial intelligence surpasses the abilities of biological intelligence. Now, I would say the research that we did today, it's not going to take us too far down that path. Right. That, that's another episode
1: for another time. Yeah, that, that, that the singularity is definitely a transition point and into an entirely different mode of existing. So let's talk about, uh,
4: what, there's different types of transhumanism. Let's, let's sort of just like upfront establish the philosophies. And you found a great piece from Omni Magazine in a 2016 article called "Transhumanism's Sexual Identity." Let's start there.
1: Yeah, this is a, this is a cool little article, and uh, towards the end of it, they did a great job of just laying out some of these different approaches to it, um, mm. which uh, which serves as a nice sort of starting point for exploring some of them and and just you know briefly explaining the other ones. Um, first up, democratic transhumanism. This is transhumanism for the people, for the species. The idea that only when you can you apply this to everyone at every socio socioeconomic level will we really be able to evolve or elevate the human race. Okay, and and I find this one interesting because on one level it's the most reasonable incarnation on the list. It's the Bernie Sanders transhumanist movement. Yeah, yeah, because like you can't. How can we say that we've evolved the human species if we're ultimately talking about just one class? Yeah, exactly. And that's where this thing often goes, right?
4: It's like, well, is only the, are, are the 1% going to be the only ones who can afford this kind of, uh, transhuman operation? Whereas like biohacking is primarily about just like DIY, do it in your garage or your kitchen or whatever yeah. and literally cut yourself open and jam stuff into your body.
1: Yeah. So yeah, this is the idea that you, can't you leave no humans behind? If mm-hmm. we're going to evolve as a species, we're going to evolve as a species. But it, it also there's a little bit of um, Western arrogance to it as well. Mm. And I heard Terry Gross on uh, NPR's Fresh Air interview uh, Donald G. McNeil Jr., author of Zika: The Emerging Epidemic. Okay, and uh, he discussed uh, you know the, the various countermeasures of delaying sexual reproduction in Zika danger zones as to avoid uh, the threat to newborns. Yeah, right. It's a big topic of conversation right now yeah but, but as he pointed out, this sort of effort in developing nations often comes across as white people a world away telling Africans or Asians not to have babies. Right. And they even they even avoid some of the loaded language by referring to it as spacing out births rather than talking about birth control. Right. Um, yeah.
4: I think I don't know if we've talked about this on the show or maybe we just talked about it in the office one mm-hmm. time. But the idea that because of the Zika epidemic and ideas of spacing out births like this, that there will be like like huge gaps in uh classes in various schools down the road in the future because for instance like a year or two will have gone by where no babies or, or less babies were born. Yeah. Right? Um and what kind of impact does that have on a society mm-hmm. going forward?
1: Yeah, indeed. Um and but but and certainly the, the transhumanist angle here is you know, do you end up walking into all these places around the world and saying, hey, everybody, this is what it means to be human now. You need to yeah. upgrade. You guys all need magnets, R- magnets in your finger- fingers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so it's, you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Yeah. If you leave everybody behind, that's bad. But if you, um, if you offer it to everybody and you're a little too insistent about it, then that's, uh, that's also a little less uh, shady. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, the next uh, version we have libertarian transhumanism and this is, Transhuman for every humanism for everybody, but without government uh, getting involved. And this, for all intents and purposes, seems to be the style of transhumanism represented by the United States Transhumanist Party who currently has a um, a US uh, presidential hopeful in the form of uh, of Zoltan Istvan. Yeah, and in fact, Zoltan uh wrote me on Twitter last oh, night cool. to let me know
4: that he was willing to help us out with this episode. Unfortunately, I received it too late into the research game, but maybe in a future episode we can consult with Zoltan. I didn't know what it was at first cuz I you know just randomly tweeted something about, "Oh, I'm researching biohacking and transhumanism," and I got a ping uh, like, midnight last night or something, and it was from him or whoever's
1: running his account. It was basically like, if you've got any questions, come to me. Yeah, it's... uh It it, it should come as no surprise to anyone out there. Uh, This election cycle has a lot of there's a lot of noise. Yeah. And it's easy for some of the other uh, candidates to become lost in that noise.
4: Yeah. But I think it would be interesting, uh, you know, potentially in a a future scenario for the show where we might have Zoltan on or we might talk to him and and get some of his input on stuff like this.
1: Yeah. Because a lot of these movements too, one of the like the really cool things about them is that they're they're very pro science. They're very pro technology. And that. You know, whatever, whatever the other lofty ideas involved there are, there is a definite pro-science agenda. And similar to the libertarian transhumanism, there's also uh, uh, anarcho-transhumanism. This is uh, like the stronger anti-capitalist, anti-state transhumanist movement. Uh, these individuals believe that uh, in the wake of these advances that we're unleashing, society's going to find a democratic form without the need of government or massive corporations. This is like almost exactly
4: how that game Eclipse phase breaks oh, down. Yeah. There's like different factions that you can be a part of. Everybody's transhuman in it, but Almost all of the factions line up with these factions we're talking about here right now. Like uh there's an anarcho one, mm-hmm. there's a, a corporate one, there's uh one that's the, we have extropianism down here, uh-huh. there's an extropianism faction. Yeah. So it's basically like within the game you have to choose what your character's sort of philosophy about being transhuman and, and modifying their body is.
1: Are there is there are there any groups that just have no part of transhumanism at all? Uh no.
4: You're but, I don't think that there's a way for you in the game to just Mm -hmm. have a like straight up human body because the whole idea is that, um, we've gotten past the singularity in the game and you can upload your mind into any kind of body and then modify that body. In fact, like some of the characters are uplifted animals in human bodies, or vice versa, human minds uplifted into animal bodies. Like, you can be like an octopus with, like, cybernetic augmentations, but you human mind.
1: Oh, that, that reminds me a lot of Ian uh, e. Banks' Fearsome Engine, which involves... I think it's heavily
4: inspired by his work. Yeah, yeah you, you should totally check this out. It's right up your alley. Uh, the,
1: the religious question, though, uh, came up because it reminded me in um, Richard K. Morgan's Altered Carbon series. Okay. That His world involves just the is an extreme use of this re sleeving of human consciousness. Yep, into that's different exactly varieties. what they call it in the game. Oh, yeah, cool
4: sleeving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can't recommend this game enough. I mean, it's really smartly mm-hmm. done. It's. Uh, I mean, if you're out there and you're like, I don't care about game like role playing games, and mm-hmm. that's cool. But I haven't even, other than that one time with Joe, played it. But just reading the book is fascinating because it presents all this stuff we're talking about here, and then sort of like science fiction fiction visions huh. for where we could go down the road with transhumanism.
1: Interesting. Yeah. Um, now, Morgan, in, in his world, certain religious groups, such as, I think specifically, there's a branch of Catholics, uh, do not engage in this transhumanist resleeving. Okay. They, so they're all in their original yeah, bodies. Yeah, they're all in their original bodies and they're just kind of set apart from sort of, you know, Almost like normal humans amid mm-hmm. all these strange uh, new approaches to humanity.
4: There's some kind of thing in the game's world in which there is like an apocalyptic event on Earth that prevents you from basically being born with a regular old human body. Huh. Um, I think because AI got out of control and it was like a Terminator type scenario. Gotcha.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, speaking of religion and transhumanism, there are religious transhumanists. Essentially, these are non-atheistic transhumanists who see transhumanist ideas as fully compatible with their religious views. Two interesting examples, one in particular, since we we've, we've recently spoke about... Um, about uh, Mormons in yeah. space, yeah, there is a Mormon Transhumanist Association. Fascinating, and it is quote the world's largest advocacy network for ethical use of technology and religion to expand human abilities. There, wow, there was, I I would never have thought that, but that's fascinating. Yeah, there's. Uh, I was reading. I'll a have lo- to ask. I have a
4: I have a friend um, who's Mormon and lives out in Utah, and is is really kind of. Progressive in his Mormon mm-hmm. views, I'll have to ask him if he's familiar with this.
1: Yeah, I kind of want to check in with um, a couple of my um, old uh, Mormon friends who I, I know they're both um, both definitely in, into science, both uh, science uh, um, advocates. But um, the, this particular Mormon take on transhumanism uh, uh, it also entails something they call transfigurism. Okay, uh, and this is uh, this is from their website. Transfigurism is religious transhumanism exemplified. By uh, synchronization of Mormonism and transhumanism, the term transfigurism denotes advocacy for change in form and alludes to sacred stories from many religious traditions. Uh, and they re- refer to uh, uh, the universal form of Krishna in Hinduism, uh, the radiant face of Moses in Judaism, and several other uh, incarnations and in other faiths. So I found that one interesting. There's also this uh, Christian transhumanist association, mm. and they have a, a number of, um, of tenets here. Here that are interesting include the idea that uh, God's mission involves the transformation and renewal of cre- creation. Um growth and progress along every dimension of humanity uh science and technology as a tangible expression of uh, of the god-given impulse to explore and discover uh, yeah uh, well cetera. that's
4: interesting cuz that is something that comes up over and over again regardless of whether it's connected to religion or not but yeah. that's that's really what's given as like the ethical motivation for a lot of biohacking
1: yeah so i wanted to touch on those because you yeah. certainly see far more of the um of, of the secular yeah. uh, body hacking and the secular transhumanism yeah, it's interesting to look at a religious spin on it
4: yeah i can't imagine one of the things i was thinking about like while we were doing this research was sitting down at my grandmother's house at the kitchen table and just like having a conversation with some coffee and being like hey did you know Grant me that there's people who uh cut their fingers open and put magnets <laughs> in there and just having her my grandmother's re- reaction would just be like, oh, my, you know, but but like trying to explain to her and then adding into it because, you know, she's a practicing Christian. Well, there's a Christian element to this, too. And explaining that to her as well.
1: It would be a weird conversation for sure. But I might try to have it someday. <laughs> Well, I'm, I'm gonna try and blow through some of these other ones just to give everyone a a basic idea here, but essentially you have, you have hedonistic, um, transhumanists who just want to yeah. figure out how to l- eliminate the the pain and focus on the good stuff. You have survivalist transhumanists that are that are hyper-focused on the idea of longevity. Right. And then there are singulitarianists, and their idea is that technological singularity is coming, yeah. the machines are going to outpace us. Let's get ready. It's inevitable. Yeah, all we can do is prepare ourselves and try and steer the course. Okay. Cosmism's on here, too, and that's actually something that
4: I've been thinking about proposing that we do for a future episode, uh, I know that there was some kind of cosmism that was working its way around Russian science thought uh, earlier in the century, so that might be fun to explore.
1: Yeah, this th- there's that. This is a slightly different thing that arises from the work of uh, AI researcher Hugo de Okay, and he he's a very interesting dude in and of himself. I mean, I mean, he's retired now, but he predicted a war against machines that would result in numerous. Ma- Megadeth's, like it's essentially a Terminator. Terminator Matrix kind of world, okay. Yeah, so he has this, he has this whole philosophy, uh, uh, laying out, uh, that involves this idea that, um you're going to have the Cosmists and you're going to have the Terrans okay. who oppose uh, you know, upgrading humans and becoming this uh, this transhuman force. And essentially, the, the transhumanists are going to have to leave the planet and the others are going to have to stay. Mm, um, okay. It gets a little more complicated than that, but that's sort of the, the basics. Well, that sounds like something that might be we- worth revisiting in the future. And if
4: anybody out there knows more about that, too, because I found when just doing kind of basic research on it, it wasn't widely available. No. Um, no. Let us know. Stuff to blow your mind at how stuff works. Sorry, blow the mind at howstuffworks.com, and let us know if you've got some opinions on that.
1: Yeah. So those are some of the basic philosophies floating around in the heads of individuals who start down this transhumanist path and get into this body modification, biohacking realm.
4: So this all brings up a question that I want to pose. Maybe it's not one that we answer now. It might just be a rhetorical question. It's something to think about as we go through the rest of the episode. With all these types of transhumanism, regardless of if it's religious or philosophical or whatever, is it ethical? And so, And the reason why I ask is because there are some people who compare transhumanism to eugenics as being some kind of division between superior and inferior versions of humanity, where one person is superior to another. Mm. And I guess that's something that we should consider as we're going forward. Um, and and especially in the case of like, you know, like we were saying, like if there's like a, uh, I guess like a capitalist faction of transhumanists and only the rich have access to uh, biomodifications that uh, prolong their life. Is
1: that ethical? I think there's a strong argument that it's not. I mean, you can already look at at the highest level of medical care. is essentially yeah. a, a transhumanist endeavor. Yeah, absolutely. And it is not available to everyone. Mm-hmm, so
4: mm-hmm. it's kind of uh, – wasn't that sort of the premise behind Elysium, that movie, uh, the Neil Blomkamp movie? Oh, yeah, yeah, with the, the rich people in orbit and yeah. everyone else is on Earth. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, like, they didn't always have access – the people on Earth didn't always have access to, like, the medical benefits that they had – what was there like? There's like some kind of machine that you could just climb in and it would like cure cancer or something. Yeah, like that, and right? that's what I think the whole plot was based on. Yeah. It was an
1: interesting film, a bit, a bit heavy yeah. handed.
4: Yeah, and, and it also kind of like went off the rails a little bit, but I kind of like it. I know most yeah. people uh, were upset by it after Blomkamp's work on District 9, but I thought it was okay.
1: Yeah, I think he, he even admits though that he, he would have he, he wished he, he could have had more time writing it. That mm-hmm. he, he wasn't mm-hmm. able to get the script exactly where he wanted it, but it's still a, a wonderful world. I'd love to see him potentially revisit it even. Yeah. Yeah. That would be interesting. So we're getting into body modification, biohacking. And I do want to just, just briefly mention that when you look at ways that we have, we have always altered the human form, you can sort of look at three basic areas. There's sort of symbolic. Um, body modification, thinking mm. in terms of, you know, stuff that's even superficial, like altering one's hair, altering one's nails, and then sure. getting into the, uh, uh you know, tattoos yep. and other things that are more permanent, but still, you're not altering, um, the, the form too much. Okay then you have things that are certainly altering the form more, and then things that are actually altering the functionality of the human body. Yeah. And that's where we, we really see some of the more interesting examples of modern body modification with a transhumanist spin.
4: Yeah, so, like, examples of altering the form would be, like, subdermal or transdermal implants, which uh, yeah. we have a really great article on how stuff works about, and our team put together this fascinating uh, infographic on how the whole, like, uh, surgical process works. But... Again, that's not sort of evolving you into another stage right. of humanity. It's not like, enhancing you.
1: Yeah, like, but like even uh, even wearing clothes is a, is a body modification yeah. and, a, and yeah. an enhancement of who you are, you are your physical manifestation. Uh, but it's certainly it's not necessarily changing the form or changing the function.
4: And what we're basically going to be talking about here for the rest of the episode is biohacking, Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's called that for a reason because it's the DIY version. You get out your own tools. And upgrade your body yourself. Biohackers ask, why should we wait for the industry or for the government to catch up to our way of thinking? Let's democratize science and do this to ourselves, right? And we're already seeing versions of this from everything to people wearing s- smartwatches and other wearable devices to the really extreme stuff that we're going to talk about today.
2: AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing. And of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Dad deserves something
3: really nice for Father's Day, but let's face it, we usually don't do it. Big gifts are for Mother's Day. world's number one dad better than a world's number one dad coffee mug is an artisan cocktail in his hand. Make dad's Father's Day and Father's Day cocktails with all natural juices and bitters without making any mess at all. Visit bartesian.com backslash father to get $50 off the best premium cocktail maker for dad at the best price for you. Bartesian. Premium cocktails on demand. Your credit card should match your lifestyle. At Kemba Financial Credit Union, choose a card with benefits that work for you. For a limited time, all cards have two percent cash back on purchases and zero percent interest on balance transfers for a year. Apply at kemba.org. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024.
5: Your new home journey starts at Fisher Homes, where everything is red, white, and new. Explore exclusive summer savings and start your journey by selecting your ideal home site and your dream community. Choose from a variety of experts. Expertly designed floor plans and bring your style to life at the Lifestyle Design Center. Are you looking for a quick move-in ready home instead? Fisher Homes has options for those too. Fill out a form to connect with a new home advisor at FisherHomes.com to get started today before the sun sets on summer savings.
4: The inspiration, as with uh, many of the philosophies that Robert just mentioned, is basically to create and discover. It's that human urge to continuously innovate, and we're going to talk about people like Kevin Warwick. And Left Anonym that I mentioned earlier, these are well-known biohackers. But they are also community labs that work on this stuff, too. They're basically either doing this in their kitchen or in some kind of body parlor. Uh, And they're working together as a community to share their information and their resources. Some are building wearables that they hope that they'll eventually implant, right? So, for instance, like there's a hat out there that electrically stimulates the prefrontal cortex that you can wear. But what if you took that a step further and you were able to install that into your head? Uh, there's an anklet that vibrates in the direction of due north. Uh, and I know from the research that, uh, Anonym is actually one of the people who's talking about actually building that and putting it in her knee. So that shit, her knee will be able to tell her where due north is. It'd be helpful if you get lost a lot. I would assume, yeah. <laughs> Uh, other dabblings that we're not going to go into full depth here on are, for instance, modifying mouth bacteria so that it eats plaque and instead recalcifies our gums or inserting organisms into our water that detect arsenic or bacteria that you eat that kill tumor cells, okay?
1: So these are all things that are on the table. Yeah, I mean, when you get into the synthetic biology realm, uh, mm-hmm. which I think we touched on some of these previously. We did, yeah. yeah that's an entirely different uh, sphere of, uh, of transhumanist body improvement that takes place at the smallest level.
4: And it's all possible because the tools are getting cheaper and more accessible. Think of it like this. Instead of having a local bike co-op where you all get together and you work on your bicycles together and make sure that, you know, share resources, these folks are having a local biohacker co-op where they're sharing resources and information on how to do this stuff safely, uh, and what they're getting out of it. And, 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 we're gonna, we're gonna dive into all of that. But remember, this is also sidestepping academia in a big way. It's getting rid of the stuffy methodology for a faster but also riskier application. There are, there's dangers here when you, when you're just like cutting yourself open and shoving stuff in your body.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is self-experimentation and, and mad science to a certain extent.
4: It is, extent. yeah. Uh, and, and I'm gonna just throw this out there. Uh, especially going back to the idea of the government getting involved. Mm-hmm. I'd say we're one major accident away from this getting a lot of attention from the media and the government getting involved in regulating what you can do with your body in terms of technology.
1: Yeah, or certainly your one news story about this is what the kids are doing. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, yeah, always. Think of the children. If 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 kids start
4: doing this, then there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on it. Then what happens? Does it go underground? I mean, it's already a subculture, but like, does it become like an illegal underground where people mm. are modifying their bodies secretly? I don't know. But we'll have to keep an eye out for it. Uh, and by the way, I want to add this too. Because of the efforts of body modifiers, transdermal implants now have impacts on our medicine. Uh, there are examples where you can use them to create chemotherapy ports that run directly into your veins while you're getting cancer treatment. Uh, there's also uh, transdermal implants that are anchored directly into bone for prosthetic limbs. And some scientists are even looking into animal horns as natural transdermals that can be inserted and they won't be rejected by the body because of infection. And hmm. that's something we're going to talk about a lot more when we get into the specifics here.
1: Yes, Stellark. Uh, this is, this is a guy that I've been fascinated with for, for years. And certainly he's been, he's been around for quite a while. He was, uh, born in 46 and had his name legally changed to Stellark in 1972. Okay. He is a performance artist, an Australian performance artist. And you have probably seen images of one project or another of his over the years because they often, uh, are extreme enough to capture mainstream media attention. Yeah, totally. I mean, I did not know his name, but I knew about the ear thing, and I
4: think well, g- g- go on ahead. I think he's had some influence on our pop culture too.
1: Yeah, he uh I mean, the the guy is, is essentially feels like he stepped out of a of a William Gibson novel. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. Uh, if if you if you see an, an interview with him and hear him talk about his work, he's a like a very thick Australian accent uh-huh. uh, that, that that feels like it would be more in keeping with just a, almost like a backwoodsy, like down to earth kind of guy. Okay, uh, especially now as an older older man, he, he might seem just like oh, he's just an older Australian dude. I think didn't didn't Motherboard do
4: like a documentary on him or something like that? Or, yeah, or Vice. Yeah. So if you really want to see him in action, you could probably watch that.
1: Yeah, yeah. He's and you uh, know. He comes off pretty uh pretty down to earth mm-hmm. even in in one of the, if, in one of these interviews he's also hooked up to a large mechanical spider body right. uh, because he's also been and he's long been involved with some pretty extreme stuff between between seventy six and eighty eight he completed twenty five different uh hook body suspicion performances, so that mm-hmm. that seems to be kind of like. The groundwork of his body modification slash performance art world. Yeah, and this is the one that I think, uh, I, I have to imagine
4: that the people who made that movie, The Cell, the mm-hmm. character of Vincent D'Onofrio must have been inspired by uh, Stellark in some way because I, I don't know if you remember, but he was hanging from hooks a lot in that movie. That was like part of oh, his Oh yeah, thing. I
1: forgot about that aspect of that. That movie was pretty loaded with, with stimuli. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so from here, he, he engaged on a whole string of projects that involved, uh, um, it basically came to, back to his, his thesis, right? Yeah, which is essentially, we're
4: progressively extending ourselves into our environment through technological artifacts. Sounds like transhumanism to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, so his argument is that we're making ourselves both cyborgs and zombies by doing this.
1: Yeah, so, so many of these projects, they're, they're not necessarily about, hey, I'm doing this thing with my body and technology that's useful. But it's more about a comment on what we are already doing and what we will be doing. So uh, just to run through some of his projects here, he did uh, the third arm project. This was a grasping and wrist rotating mechanism with a rudimentary sense of touch. It was attached uh, to him and activated by uh, EMG from other body areas. Hmm he uh he had a he has this he had this stomach sculpture yeah that, and this one I read almost killed him yeah there were this is certainly he's all about getting into that area where health comes second yeah. to the to the art, to the technology, but this was the thing that was endoscopic. Went down his throat, endoscopic cameras. It would open up like a like a metallic flower, okay, and then there would be a light. And a lot of this was, you know, conceptual. Yeah. You know, the, the stomach is a dark, lightless place, but with this technology, there is light and movement in there okay. uh, where otherwise there would not be. Mm. Um, and yeah, fortunately, it did not kill him. There um, was an exoskeleton uh, project that he did, and this involved like these... This large uh, array of pneumatic spider-like legs, this big walking machine that uh, that he kind of sat in the middle of and allowed him to control the machine through arm gestures. He essentially looked like a like a Spider-Man villain. This, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very Doc. I'm thinking Oc-ing. of those. Uh, what are the D and D monsters? Driders. Uh, yeah, yeah. He did, did look a lot like yeah. a mechanical they're like drider. centaurs with spider bodies. Yeah. Yeah. He also did a few different performances, Fractal Flesh, Ping Body, and Parasite. And these ex- explored involuntary and remote uh, Internet choreography for the body with electrical stimul- uh, stimulation of the muscle. So essentially outsourcing his movements mm. to direct uh, control via the Internet. Mm. Um, he did a project with his partner, uh, Nina Sellers, where they took... Uh, Essentially, they took different uh, biomaterials such as um uh, subcutaneous fat peripheral nerves extracted from both of their bodies, put them in this uh this slurry in this uh pressurized tank, and then it just kind of gets uh blended up periodically and, okay yeah um uh, and, and then what do they do with it afterwards oh you just uh, you just kind of look at it oh okay yeah, yeah. I th- I was
4: thinking it would be like ghostbusters 2, where they like put it <laughs> into like those uh squirt guns. Maybe squirted on ghosts.
1: No, I think this one was more about like like bodily identity and okay. what happens if you take okay. like this mass. Is it of, still human if it's just a scary? Yeah, got yeah. it. This is this one was probably one of their more grotesque uh, creations. Uh, but it depends, I guess, where you stand on his most famous work, the third year. Yeah. So this, uh, and we touched on this a little bit in a previous episode, but. This involved taking a biocompatible scaffolding, mm-hmm. surgically inserting it into his left forearm, and this happened in 2006, creating the shape of an ear, and then over the, in the years to follow, additional surgeries, after they found the surgeons willing to do it, uh, to to form this out even more. Uh, And I think they still need to add an earlobe to it. Yeah, and I think we should clarify
4: here. He has just added the shape of an ear to his arm in the way that we described vat-grown uh, organs as being sort of framed by scaffolds. This right. is not a functional
1: ear on his arm. No, it's and it's not his actual ear. But right. But creating the form of the, the ear on the arm, and then the big plan is to have a microphone in there that is connected Uh-oh. to the Internet so that it allows the ear to hear, so that you might be able to, say, go to his website uh-huh. and then listen and through hear. his artificial ear. Okay. It has not come to fruition just yet. There was a previous attempt to install the microphone, and there was an infection, and they kind of had to scrap that. Uh, but my understanding is that he's currently moving uh, toward getting a second attempt, and this time, uh, hopefully, it will stick. He needs to kickstart that. I don't know yeah. if Australia, yeah, surely Australia. Well, he gets a lot of start. he gets we a get, lot of funding.
4: Where uh, is he getting the funding from? Like, uh, like, like a. Uh, Private equity, or is it like uh, from grants or something? Different like that? grants. Like he's really? uh, he's
1: been the artist in residence at at various universities. Okay. okay. Um. So and also, I feel like maybe he's a like gener- generationally, maybe he's not as into the the Kickstarter culture. But yeah, probably not. But I could see this being a highly successful Kickstarter. Oh yeah, yeah. With, yeah, yeah. With the different... Or the Stellark Patreon
4: account. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. You get to you get to listen to his uh, ear arm for
1: an hour every day if you chip <laughs> in ten dollars a month but it's it's an example of how the project is a, is a is commentary yeah. on where we are with the technology how interconnected we are and what are the you know what are the limits of my body as identity once we get all this technology involved mm-hmm. so he's one of those those guys that just throughout his career He has he has been kind of an avatar, kind of a harbinger of transhumanism, exemplifying things that are kind of scary and inhuman about what's possible, but also highlighting where we are already. Yeah.
4: So there's a couple other bio artists that I want to cover before we get into real like bio hackers. Stellark is, you know, essentially doing art with his uh, body modification, but he's not necessarily trying to take his body to like the next level of human evolution. Uh, I guess you could say like the third arm might function that way, but but having an ear on your arm isn't necessarily going to give you that much of an advantage.
1: Right. He he is an artist first and foremost.
4: But there's this great Ionine article on the topic, and so I just wanted to cover real quickly a couple of these ones that were listed in here. The first was Orlin, who is a, a bioartist that uses cosmetic surgery to transform her face into different forms with elements of famous paintings. Huh. So that sounds interesting. There's Jennifer, uh, Genesis Briar... Breyer- P. Orridge, not porridge. Uh, This is a person who explores gender, occultism, and sex work. Uh, They did something called Project Pandrogyny with his wife Lady J, where they tried to create an amalgam of their two bodies together. They underwent breast implants and other physical alterations to basically get closer to being the
1: same being. Yeah, she, uh, Lady J, sadly died in 2007. Okay. But there's a a very well received uh, documentary that came out in 2011 called The Ballad of Genesis and Lady J, um, if you want to know more about about mm. that um, project, check that out. But uh, Genesis P. Orridge, or, in in general is a, a pretty important figure just in the history of uh, industrial music. Mm. Uh, if you're familiar with Throbbing Gristle, Psychic TV, um, just a, a very influential artist. Okay. Eduardo Cack was also listed there. And this is a person who took the book of
4: Genesis, translated it into Morse code and converted it into base pairs of genetics. This sounds familiar because we talked about doing that in one of our recent episodes, but not with Genesis. It was a different book. Uh, then they implanted the genes into bacteria. Uh, he also created a green fluorescent rabbit named Alba. Uh, and this is something we've talked about on the show before, too. If you take the green fluorescent protein that's found in certain jellyfish and you implant it in other animals, it, it turns out you can make them also uh, biofluorescent. So he did that to a rabbit. Natasha Vita Moore, uh, her best work is Primo Post-Human, which shows a futuristic version of the human form that is overcoming disease and aging. So kind of more along those immortality lines of transhumanism. Mm. Uh, she proposes, I don't believe that this is something that was actually built. I think this is a sort of... Uh, sci-fi proposal an outer sheath of smart skin that would be both it would have design and communication purposes it's also going to be engineered to self-repair with nanobots uh, both the epidermis and dermis and it would tell the brain the texture and tone of the surface required on it it would also Alter your body's temperature, tell you the percentage of toxins in your surrounding environment, and extract radiation effects from the sun. Now, this sounds like biohacking if it was real.
1: Yes, though, without knowing a lot about the project, I have to say that a number of the things that the second skin does, mm. the, the the actual skin yep. already does. Right. You so yeah, you're not getting any superpowers from yeah. this one. Like yeah. it already self repairs. It already um, absorbs um, energy from the sun. Yep. Um, you know, it, it already regulates my temperature. You get into problems when you cover that up. But that's a separate tangent.
4: <laughs> yep. Uh, there's also Micah Cardenas. Uh, in 2008, she performed... Becoming the Dragon, which was a 365-hour mixed reality performance that took place in Second Life. Wow, that's why it was in 2008 because I don't think much people, many people, would watch a performance in Second Life in 2016. <laughs> uh, she took the form of a dragon in there and basically lived her life as a dragon in Second Life, and that was part of it. So that's a it's a little more virtual than a, what a lot of these other people mm-hmm. are doing. And the last one listed here is Amy Mullins, who is a Paralympian athlete she collaborated with a fashion designer uh named Alexander McQueen oh, on yeah. a project. And the, yeah, he's great. Yep. Yeah. So he basically built her uh she she her legs were amputated when she was 1 year old. Uh so he uh built out hand carved wooden prosthetics that had in, integral boots connected to them uh, and built those out for her to pose in. So those are the art versions of this. But then we've got a whole another group of transhuman pioneers. And these are the, these are the biohackers that are really looking at ways to build things into their bodies that give them more than human perception would allow.
1: So functional transhumanism over symbolic transhumanism. Exactly.
4: Okay. So let's start with probably one of the most infamous biohackers known as captain cyborg. His real name is Kevin Warwick, uh, Warwick, in 1998, launched the first phase of what he called Project Cyborg. And he designed an RF implant to perform basic tests, like uh, basically use a signal to open remote control doors or control lights in his home. Uh, it's basically like it sounds like he had Nest in his arm, right? Yeah. Like uh, uh, he could send commands to computers with it. Surgeons inserted a glass capsule that contains several microprocessors into his body. Phase two of this, uh, project cyborg began in 2002. Warwick installed an array of electrodes directly into his nervous system to monitor the activity at his median nerve. As a result, he was able to control a robotic arm with mental action alone. He also implanted these in his, uh, his wife, Arena. Uh, and he wanted to see if they could record their sensory experiences together, including pain, pleasure and sex. Uh, they didn't reveal what the results of that were, but they uh could correctly identify one another's nerve signals 98 percent of the time. Huh. So that's kind of interesting. Um, There's a lot of interviews with this guy. He's all over the place. He's um, an interesting figure. He's also pretty public about the work that he's doing. Uh, And he said in a W Magazine interview that his primary interest was in this, one, so he could come up with electric, electronic procedures to combat diseases like Parkinson's, blindness, arthritis, and schizophrenia. But two, he wanted to upgrade humans to be able to do pretty much anything. Sounds like transhumanism to me. Yeah. He's also had some involvement in attempts to beat the Turing test. You might remember this from a couple of years ago. The infamous example where Eugene, the computer program, uh, was uh, basically celebrated as having finally beaten the Turing test. If you're unfamiliar with the Turing test, the idea is basically that a computer program would be able to trick a human into thinking they were talking to a human and not a computer. Oh, yes. So, uh, yeah, he was involved in that. Lately, he's been talking about ways to increase the number of neurons in the human brain because he thinks that our brains are getting bored. Uh, and he wants to connect brains in incubators to robots. He claims uh, he's actually working together with one of his students on a learning living brain that's connected to a robot body via Bluetooth. Huh. So yeah, that sounds fun. Sounds like uh, uh, in Fallout, like I was talking about earlier. There's these robots called Robo Brains, and they're just these like kind of clunky lunchbox-looking robots, but their their CPU is a brain in a jar.
1: Oh, see, but now you don't have to have the the your brain in a jar mm-hmm. on bot. Mm-hmm. Your your Robocop two can be powered from the next room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um,
4: there are others who have uh, sort of. Sp- sprung off of Warwick's research. So, for instance, in 2004, there was an experiment inspired by him to use electronic implants to enable basic communication between two people's nervous systems. Brown University also developed rechargeable neurotransmitters to communicate... Uh, from human bodies to external devices. They hope that this will allow humans to communicate telepathically with multiple nervous systems. I can tell you we're spoilers. <laughs> we're going to get into this later. That has happened. Uh, and in fact, uh, it was a team of international researchers who did this. They built the first human to human interface. And in front of us, Robert and I have this and I suggest that you go look it up. It was um. It's part of a really good article on this that was on extreme tech called the first human brain to brain interface has been created in the future. We will all be linked telepathically. Uh, And what we're looking at here is basically how it works. Um, So one researcher attached a brain computer interface to themselves. And they were in India, and they were able to send words into the brain of a researcher who is in France, and that person was wearing a computer-to-brain interface. So what we're talking about here is essentially telepathy, but, but how does it work? It's not like you're hearing their thoughts, right? right. Uh, basically, you're moving data. You're putting it into someone else's brain, uh, and the BCI uses an electroencephalogram. The CBI uses a transcranial magnetic stimulation rig, something that's very similar to the transcranial magnetic stimulation that we've talked about on this show and many other House of Works shows before. It's kind of an obsession around here, the idea of blasting your brain with electricity to maybe get smarter. Mm-hmm. Kind, of, kind of works the same way. The words get encoded into binary. They're transmitted and then translated back to the recipient's visual cortex they then see flashes of light uh, and it triggers their body to produce phosphine that makes this light appear to them so basically it's like morris code like this flashing light that only your eyes see so that's you know it sounds like oh well that's not that big of a deal but they're doing this from india to france it's kind of a big deal uh it's basically brain to brain morse code essentially once they're translating it
1: yeah and this is something that even in this this small example even in just the, the the what's what's provable and doable today it it alters our perceptions of what it means to be a singular human entity yeah yeah absolutely i mean
4: i think this is really where a lot of transhumanists would like to see this go right as mm-hmm. as a Uh, it's using technology to be able to improve both our senses, but also our understandings of ourselves. Yeah. Uh, changing what we mean by identity, all that stuff. So certainly if you're able to communicate with one another, even just through Morris code without speaking, that would, that would uh, be a step forward in that direction.
1: Then we have a, a few different versions of uh, the Eyeborg. Yeah. So the one I
4: read about was a, an artist named Neil Harbison, mm-hmm. and he went to the hospital and and basically said, hey, can you help install this stuff in me? I'm colorblind. I want to be able to detect colors. So he used this device called the iBorg uh, that translates colors into vibrations in his skull, that he can subsequently hear. So to me, this sounds like transhuman synesthesia, basically.
1: Yeah, taking, uh, taking one form of sense data, transforming it into another, uh, enabling them to experience, uh, these colors through, uh, through, through bone uh, conduction of sound waves. Yeah, but um, you have other iBorg applications here too. Uh well, the, yeah, there's there's one other main one and that's uh that has to do with this guy Rob Spence, uh Canadian film director and uh, he uh sustained permanent damage to his right eye and in 2009 he hooked up with camera pro- provider Omnivision. Uh, as well as a group of engineers, first uh, ocularist uh, Phil Bowen, then uh, engineer uh, Costa Gramadas, and then electrical engineer Martin Ling. To replace his prosthetic prosthetic eye with a functional digital video camera. Interesting. So I wonder.
4: I wonder if some of our guys here in our video production team would be willing to do that.
1: If they're willing to give up an eye, yeah. and uh, they have some talented individuals to. Because one of the problems is then you have to try and fit everything into that eyeball right um, uh, space. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's you know, it's it's a fairly sounds like a Cenobite. Yeah, a little like bit. Like one of those. Yeah, there was a like with a camera in the head. camera. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a, a task that you have to you have to pull off without the individual looking like a cinnabite. Yeah. Um, well, given, given and harder with two thousand nine technology, the technology's come a long well, way.
4: Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is like given how small the video cameras in our
1: phones are nowadays, that's that wouldn't be that hard. Yeah. So he was able to uh, to do to do this to replace his prosthetic eye with a functional vi- digital video camera uh touted as quote the world's first literal point of view uh including glancing around and blinking wow yeah huh and uh, he's on twitter uh, he's uh, you can follow his efforts here his ongoing efforts with the with the iborg project yeah he's on twitter as iborg and uh, his website is iborgproject.tv Okay so I'm imagining he does like a lot of periscope events
4: but unfortunately in his periscopes you can't see him you just see what he sees.
1: Yeah I mean well there's something beautiful in the idea right that you you take this injury yeah. And then you turn it into something that actually enables your passion, enables your career. Yeah, and your exactly. Abilities. And
4: I think that that's a lot of what transhumanists are looking to do or biohackers are looking to do, you know, like especially like come up with ways for the, quote, disabled to be able to operate in almost a, a enhanced
1: fashion. Right. Yeah. Which brings us to Jerry Jalava. Uh, a, uh, a Finnish software developer who in 2009 lost half his index finger in a motorcycle accident. Okay. So, as he was uh, working with the, uh, with, with doctors to, to get a prosthesis there, he did what uh, came natural. You, uh, you simply have a, a USB drive there in the end of your, your new artificial okay. finger, so you can just remove the, the cap from the end of your, yeah. your finger, and you have a USB drive. So he's got all of his data.
4: I hope it's like a good USB drive, though, like one of those ones with like a <laughs> couple gigs. It's not like one of those cheapo
1: ones that has yeah, like 365 me- megabytes. Yeah. Um, he's got like a couple <laughs> MP3s in his finger. At the time, it was uh, a 2-gigabyte okay. uh, storage drive. I can only imagine, being a software developer, that he has... Uh, he has far more uh, storage capacity now. Yeah, if right. he still has kept with it, hopefully it's, it's modifiable,
4: bit. and he can just keep putting new ones in as the technology improves. Yeah,
1: so th- <laughs> you know this is kind of neat. It's also kind of s- it's it's kind of spy movie esque. Yeah, know, the, the idea, idea of-, of inserting mm-hmm.
4: your finger into a computer. Yeah,
1: yeah, and I and I think also it's like the USB drive comes out. Oh, because, okay. Okay. once you sort of break it, break it down, it's not very practical to to to, to just set there. Right, because then you've only got one on hand to operate
4: the mouse and the keyboard. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but I can only imagine it it played well at parties and uh, it's yeah. a bar trick. Yeah. like, hey, you want to see my USB drive? And just go. Well, speaking of
4: fingers and party tricks, let's talk about subdermal magnetism. So this is what I insinuated uh, or implied at the beginning of the episode with the idea of installing tiny magnets into your fingertips. Uh, This is a thing that a lot of people have done. Uh, the magnets are coated with materials. I, I couldn't exactly figure out what the materials were that they're coated with, but this seems to be a common thing so that the magnets aren't rejected by your body. And the hackers say that this provides them with a sixth sense that allows them to feel magnetic fields. Hmm. Uh, it creates sen- basically sensations in their fingertips. Uh, and, as I said at the top of the episode, you can pick up, Paper clips and bottle caps, basically. Okay.
1: Um, and I do find the paperclip thing hilarious because I do it's such a, an outdated thing for transhumanists to be messing with.
4: Well, and one of the guys was even saying that like, uh, I think his broke, uh, like the magnet itself, like broke apart in his finger. And then the magnet pieces kind of came back together again, naturally over time. But the, the, Magnetism was weaker. He's like, I can only pick up small pa- paper clips now. I used to be able to pick <laughs> up large paper clips, but no longer. Uh, but there is something else to this. Uh, it's not just the paper clips. They're really interested in the sensory stuff. But uh, big warning, right up front: do not do this and then climb into an MRI machine because it will rip the magnets oh. right out of your fingers. Also, uh, airport security is problematic. If you're walking through airport security and you've got magnets built into your finger- fingers, it's going to mess
1: things up. Yeah, trying to explain to the TSA agents that you are a transhuman mm-hmm. uh, and that you have magnets implanted in your body, I, I can only imagine that's just going to lead to more
4: So uh, I, I pulled up a couple different articles on this that were interesting. Gizmodos really covered it uh, in depth. They uh, actually had a piece by Dan Berg on Gizmodo where he shared his experience of having one of these implanted into his pinky finger. Uh, he was initially wary after seeing the early prototypes and what they did when they broke down and corroded inside somebody's finger. But he goes through the procedure pretty clearly. He says, and this is a direct quote from him, my finger was marked in two places where the magnet was going. To Go as well as the incision spot around a quarter to a half an inch away from the final resting spot for the magnet. Uh, His body modifier then made the incision with a scalpel, used a tissue elevator to separate that tissue, slid the magnet into place and sealed the incision with surgical glue. Next, a bit of tissue compression went on. They wrapped his finger up, and he was on his way. He said it took 15 to 20 minutes total. However, it took him months before his finger regained full sensation, but he was noticing vibrations from magnetic fields, primarily in cash registers, microwaves, and laptop fans. He also noticed that when he handled other magnets, uh, the magnet in his finger would flip uncomfortably huh. uh, he said it wasn't painful but it was uncomfortable uh, he said this especially happened with the speakers in his iPad because those are magnetized uh, so over the years he noted too that the magnet in his finger has lost strength
1: huh you got to have a certain amount of confidence in what you're doing to, to uh, yeah. engage in this yeah I I, I definitely think so I,
4: I I can't imagine doing this myself. Um, It sounds intriguing, the idea of having this sort of magnetic sense, but I don't know that I would want to go through the process. Uh, then io9 and gizmodo, they also talked with Eric Boyd, who's at hack lab in Toronto, which is one of these biohacking, uh, sort of community centers. Uh, and he says, you know, he clarifies, this is more about sensory augmentation. It's not about the party tricks of pick, picking up paper clips. Uh, it's useful for people, especially who work with electronics because they can feel the difference between live and dead wires. He mentions a group called Grindhouse Wetware that I'm going to come back to later. Uh, They're working on a device called Bottlenose that fits over your finger if you've got one of these magnetic implants. And it augments the experience further. It could, uh, for instance, sense infrared. It can also transmit information through vibrations. Or it could be used to measure distances as a ranging device. It's supposedly safest if you're going to get the magnetic implementation to do so on your ring finger on your non-dominant hand, because it is quote your least useful finger. So apparently huh. like if you have to choose, like if you're in a, like a game throne situation and somebody's going to cut off one of your fingers, if you have to choose the ring finger on your least dominant hand is the best one to go because it uh, has the least to do with gripping action.
1: Interesting. huh?
4: So, uh, but you also have to be careful that this is not placed between uh, your touch surface and the bone. Because if you're like in an emergency situation where like, say, let's say you fell off of something, you have to grip it really hard, right? It would crush the magnet. Hmm. So uh, it's usually embedded on the inside corner of the finger. Also note that the body artists who perform this, they're not allowed to use anesthesia because they don't have licensing for that. So it's real painful. Uh, and the, Basically, all they can do is put your hand in ice water to numb it. It it takes, some say, less than 10 minutes. Dan earlier said 15 to 20.
1: So we're talking some real cowboy transhumanism here, like putting a stick between your teeth and Mm -hmm. staring into the campfire. Yeah, biting on a bullet. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Uh, and they use standard neodymium
4: magnets for this. Uh, what you need to do, though, there's the whole biocoding thing, and that's, you know, as we've talked about with and organs and organ transplants and all that stuff, your body rejects foreign material, so you need this biocoding to help it keep that from happening. You definitely don't want this to fail, and you don't want the magnet to shatter, otherwise you're going to end up with heavy metals exposed to the inside of your body. Uh, one other thing to note: the magnets are too small to wipe out a hard drive, so don't worry
1: about that if you're planning on getting this done. Yeah, that would be because that would be especially um, problematic if finger on this hand has a USB de- uh, device. <laughs> yeah. Finger on this hand is a
4: powerful magnet. Yeah, uh, and then you do like the small wonder thing, or sorry, not small wonder, out of this world. You touch the two fingers together, and you erase all the information <laughs> off your USB drive. Uh, the other reason why people are doing this in their fingertips is because it's one of the areas in our bodies where we have the highest nerve density, uh, the movement of the magnet there in response to EM fields, basically it stimulates the somatosensory receptors in your fingertip these are the same ones that are responsible for us to perceive pressure, temperature, and pain. Now, Grindhouse Wetware that I mentioned earlier, they've also inserted something called Circadia into one of their members. It's a biosensor that accumulates weeks of body temperature data and sends it to his smartphone via Bluetooth data. The idea is basically that uh, eventually we'll have something like this that uh, will give us biometric data, like quantify what's going on in our yeah, bodies. Yeah, real-time
1: evaluation of what our body's mm-hmm. doing. That is a very- very uh, useful transhumanist idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's sort of like a Fitbit in your body, but yeah. like with more applications. Because so many of the the problems that arise with our health, you, you don't have like real time knowledge of it. You find out. Months down the line, maybe years down the line, exactly far past the the point of of easy intervention. So, the, yeah, the the biometric possibilities of transhumanism, I think, are some of the most exciting and most uh, most useful.
4: Yeah, I th- I, I'm, it makes me think back to like it, it's very easy to sort of dismiss this stuff and just be like, oh, whatever, this is like this crazy subculture, right? But like. Again, like think about like the transdermal how transdermal implants ended up becoming useful for uh, chemotherapy, right? So there are some applications here that are going to you know spring out of this that I think we're going to start seeing in medicine in the future. All right. That brings us to who left Anonym, who I started off the episode quoting. Uh, she is a Berlin-based Scottish DIY biohacker. Uh, and there is an interview with her in Wired Magazine that just gave me kind of an overview that I want to present to you all. Uh, she does most of her work in her own apartment, sterilizing her equipment with vodka. This definitely sounds like a Sasuka sisters style yeah. uh, biohack. It hurts a lot she says and she's also passed out before while she's been doing this. Oh. Uh it's the kind of DIY body, body hacking that is referred to as grinding when you're just and, and this is not to be confused with grinder the uh, social media application for mm-hmm. dating. Uh, this is grinding as in, like, you're in your kitchen with a scalpel and uh, uh, some uh something to separate the flesh out so that you can put devices into your body on your own. She does all her own surgeries with a scalpel. She does have a spotter there with her in case she passes out. She once tried to implant a temperature sensor transdermally that would show varying brightness uh, under her skin to indicate what the temperature was. But... This was a total disaster. She didn't bioproof it right away. So she ended up in the hospital, and she's ended up in the hospital several times because of uh, bad implementations. Her implants have actually rusted under her skin, and her surgeries have turned septic. She did the whole magnets in the fingers thing, too, except she didn't want to go through the effort of paying a body artist to do it. Uh, she thought that was too expensive. So what she did was she coated the magnets in Sugru, which is like a silicon putty, is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes she just uses hot gun glue. She said something to the effect of, like, you wouldn't believe how many things I put in my body that are covered in hot gun glue. Uh, and she inserted uh, the magnets into all of her fingertips. And she said, well, that only cost 20 pounds. So she got the magnets. I, I mean, I, I don't know if she's like ordering these on eBay or Amazon or whatever. She just gets the magnets, some hot gun glue and a knife and vodka and just did it
1: herself. Now I imagine a number of people are thinking right now. This sounds an awful lot like mental illness. Um, <laughs> maybe but, yeah. and, and maybe, uh, but but I do want to remind uh, everyone of the old adage, uh, uh, if I'm uh, repeating it correctly here, that uh, pioneers are often massacred, and it's the settlers. That profit. So yeah. we're definitely talking about pioneers here. Oftentimes, the pioneers don't have the uh, the best outcome. These are the individuals that are trying new things, going into new places and it 's going to be the people that come after them they 're going to have the easier time of it and maybe actually benefit uh, in, in a larger sense from the uh, from the advancements yeah, this is true, and left anonym i mean, I can tell you she gives
4: a lot of lectures about this stuff, so mm-hmm. she 's treated seriously, a lot of people invite her to come and speak about her experiences and how they 've gone, but you know. Uh, this is the more brutal side of biohacking, for yeah. sure. At the time that the article was written, which was in 2010, she was talking about installing a compass chip and a power coil in her left knee so she could sense magnetic north. And I, I mentioned earlier the device that you would wear. It was a wearable that would do the same thing. She wanted it in her body. Huh. Okay. Here's a, uh, so that's, that's an individual, but we got another, um, this is a really good one, uh, and it and it comes from another sort of collective. It's mainly two guys. They called themselves Science for the Masses, and you may have heard of this story as it was making the rounds. This is the kind of thing that comes across Robert and my desk on a Monday morning, and we wonder, do we write about this this week, or is this <laughs> is this bogus? And it turned out it wasn't bogus. Uh, they created night vision eye drops, uh, and they described themselves as an independent biohacking collective. In their experiment. Experiment. They use the chemical chlorine E6, which is a relative of chlorophyll. It's been used to try to treat cancer, and it occurs naturally in deep sea fish to enhance the light receptors in their eyes. In cancer treatment, it's used in combination with energy from low powered light sources to destroy cancerous cells by inducing apoptosis, which we've talked about on the show before. As such, if you're going to put this stuff in your eyes, you really want to stay away from bright or ambient daylight because it could harm your eye cells and cause permanent damage. Their idea came from the work of a guy named Ilias washington who's at columbia university and he wanted to test this chlorophyll derivative to make proteins in our eyes respond to red light instead of green light he tested it on mice what he didn't tell other people was he also tested it on himself and he didn't report the results <laughs> uh, they were inspired by this they were also inspired by an experiment that was uh, a patent that was filed by Totada R. Shantha is a Georgian doctor who lost his license for medical fraud. It's Dr. Nick. Yes, <laughs> it does sound like <laughs> him. Doesn't it? <laughs> um, what they did was they said, well, like many biohackers, well, we can't get, uh, you know, uh, actual academic approval for this. So we're going to test it ourselves. So Gabriel Echenia, I believe is how it's pronounced. He was the subject and his co-conspirator Jeffrey Tibbetts was the one who applied it. They put 50 microliters of the CE6 together with saline and insulin into his eyes with a drip. Within an hour, it interacted with the photoreceptors in his Eyes, He could distinguish images and symbols beyond 50 meters in the darkness. He was also able to identify people up to 50 meters away in the dark. The effect did wear off after some time, however. Uh, and I should also mention, like, he uh, had to wear these sort of eerie-looking, demonic, black contact lenses uh, over his eyes while he was doing this. So when you see pictures of this, you'll see a guy with just completely black eyes. That's not because of the stuff they put in his eyes. It's because of the lenses he was wearing for protection. Huh. The idea of the insulin being in there, well, that was to allow absorption of the chemical CE six into his eye. They also used a chemical called DMSO to increase the permeability of the cellular membrane, basically to allow the free passage of the chemicals into his eye. Uh, there is a high risk of cellular toxicity here, though. Especially if you're gonna, the DMSO, it allows that chemical into your eye, but it also allows outside contaminants that could be absorbed with the chemical. So it should be totally handled with caution. This is, this is not, uh, don't do this at home. Yeah, this is some pretty heavy biohacking here. This mm-hmm. is incredible. Uh, and especially because that stuff can also be absorbed through your skin. From their site uh, itself, from Science for the Masses site, they have a review on the whole experiment, and this is what they said. First of all, I wanted to say it's really cool. The research that they did is all under the Creative Commons license, so anybody can go look it up, and they can see exactly what they did and follow their notes. Uh, they provide a disclaimer right at the top and they say increased light amplification may have adverse effects on the cellular structure of the eye. So some materials in this mixture should not be used on animals or humans and that there had been previous research in the patent I mentioned earlier that claimed the mixture would absorb to the retina increase vision in low light. So uh, basically, here's how they did it. They pinned open his eyes like clockwork orange style with a speculum and had a, a micro pipette to slowly add the solution to his conjunctival sac. Then they placed the black sclera lenses I mentioned earlier into each eye. Then on top of that, they gave him sunglasses. All of this was to reduce the potential light that was entering his eye because they didn't want this stuff to start destroying the cells in his eyeball. hmm. His eyesight returned normal by morning. 20 days later, they checked him out. There were no noticeable effects. Okay, so he's okay. For future research, what they want to do is they want to take a Gansfield stimulator and an electro, uh, electrotinograph to measure how much electrical stimulation the eye is actually receiving during this kind of experiment. They want basically quantifiable numbers so that they can measure the ranges of vision that are being amplified. So this, I mean, this is, this is biohacking to the extreme, right? You're giving us superpowers, you're you're giving uh, what in Dungeons
1: and Dragons would be called low light vision Mm -hmm. uh, to a human being. And then having to wear the the black contact lenses, the sunglasses, essentially wearing sunglasses at night to keep track of the visions in his eyes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
4: yeah. Uh, these guys have since, like, broken up their collective. Lachina has worked in a handful of molecular biology labs. Tibbetts is a registered nurse. These guys are professors professionals. Mm -hmm. Uh, Other biohacking groups have tried this experiment as well, but no one has the money for testing it on a large scale. This is one of the things that people don't talk about with biohacking is that because it's not through a big institution like a company or or, uh, a university, there's no money at hand, uh, especially for the proper legal ramifications that might come. If you run clinical trials on people as volunteers Uh, and look, the National Institute of Health is not likely to fund somebody who's just going to drop chemicals into a human's eyeball for night vision, right? Right. Um, But what about other people who might fund this. So they said, uh, these are the guys who performed the experiment, they actually said military contractors got in touch with them afterward and were interested in it. They also said a boating magazine contacted them and said that this could have applications for sailors who were working at night, and instead of having to put on like heavy goggles or machinery or whatever so they could see
1: at night, they could use this night vision stuff. Mm-hmm. And if you happen to have a, a very spacious basement, With a pit in it, (laughs) you know, it's just a no-brainer. You want these drops. perfect way to test it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. As long as there's lotion in the pit as well. (laughs) Um,
4: Licinia, when he was interviewed by Gizmodo, he said, let's be fair here. It's kind of crap science. (laughs) So he's not, you know, fooled in anything, like thinking that they've made some big uh, headway, other than, you know, they basically took what an academic wrote down in a paper and just did it in their garage, it sounds like. Um, they also wanted to clarify for the media. They didn't inject this stuff into his eye. They used Mm -hmm. eyedroppers to put it in his eye. So there's some problems here as well too, right? Like, so the biohacking thing kind of gets around, the i guess peer reviewed nature of academic papers in that like there's no way to really follow up on this right like what if he already had better than average night vision or what if it was a placebo effect that was taking place and they yeah. didn't have a control group in place to sort of measure it against
1: yeah like if i go to to, to these to these extremes to improve my night vision yeah i'm going to kind of want my night vision to be improved and uh, that's going to potentially have an effect on my perception exactly right
4: All right. One more totally crazy one. Have you heard of Aquaman crystals?
1: Ooh, I have not. Is this a new street drug?
4: Yeah, man. Everybody's doing it. No. (laughs) Aquaman crystals uh, came out of a 2014 study at the University of Southern Denmark. They discovered a crystalline substance. This is actually one that's not really biohacking. It it happened at a university. They discovered a crystalline substance that absorbs and stores huge amounts of Oxygen. Now, these are synthetic, but they're derived from cobalt to siphon oxygen from both air and water, and they might let people breathe underwater. It hasn't been tested yet, but it could also
1: help people who need Uh, Like an oxygen tank, for instance, if they Hmm. have lung ailments. So you could have a small... Yeah, I I do remember when this research came out. I'm not mistaken. This is the one, too, where the other sensational spin on it was that you could suck all the oxygen out of a room with it.
4: Bingo. That actually comes up right in the next notes. Uh, Motherboard cover it, and they said, if you use 10 liters of this stuff, which is called crystalline cobalt salt, it can draw 21% of the air out of a room, like Mm -hmm. instantly. Uh, it binds basically to individual oxygen molecules, and it works like artificial hemoglobin. So the idea here is that it would be able to operate indefinitely. Uh, the oxygen would bind to the iron in your blood. It would also bind to the metal cobalt that are in the crystals and then just sort of replenish itself. Huh. Um, and according to them, they say a few grains contain enough oxygen for one breath. And since it continually resupplies itself, a diver needing oxygen would only need a few of these grains. Huh. So this is like something out of the abyss, right? Yeah. I think in the abyss they used liquid oxygen. But sort of like you would inhale a couple of these grains and then you could just breathe underwater indefinitely.
1: Yeah, just the micronization of uh, existing technology. Yeah, exactly. So another potential medical application there. All right, so we've talked about sort of the transhumanist dreams. We've talked about some of these biohacking uh, realities. We've talked about the the harbingers uh, and the pioneers. You're probably wondering, well, how do we know when we get there? How do we know when we've actually achieved yeah. transhumanism? I mean, needless to say... If we if we reach the point where we have these like really crazy out there sci-fi incarnations of of human existence, yeah, we're transhuman at that point. Yeah, but but what actually has to take place? Yeah, I mean, Google Glass isn't transhumanism, right? Right, right you can't check it off the list just because you have some Google. <laughs> <friends>. Yeah. <laughs> well. uh... As with everything transhuman, it's kind of in the eye or the bionic eye of the beholder. Mm-hmm. But bioethicist uh, Kyle McKentrick weighed in on this in 2011 in a Discover Magazine piece that he did. And he was basically uh, expanding some previous comments where uh, people would ask him, well, how are we going to know? What are the what are the the qualifications for transhumanist uh, uh, evolution?
4: This is a great article, by the way. I really liked uh, his tone throughout yeah. the
1: PC. he He had some funny bits in there. So... These are his seven uh, qualifiers. First of all, prosthetics are, are preferred. This is the basic idea that you're going to get to the point where not only is a prosthetic limb as good mm-hmm. as the limb you're replacing, not only is a synthetic organ, a vat-grown organ or an artificial organ, as good as the original, but is actually an improvement. Okay. Obviously we're we're a bit far away from that being a reality. Yeah, yeah, but but I'm just thinking like man, like every
4: week I feel like stories just pop in more and more and more about prosthetic limb enhancements and BCIs being used to control prosthetic limbs.
1: Yeah, and there if you're selective in how you judge it, uh, certainly we have examples of say, you know, runners with artificial legs that are able to perform yeah. or, to, you know, a high level. Mm-hmm. Uh so depending on how you look at it, yes, prosthetic limbs are getting, you know, crazy good at uh at replicating or sometimes even exceeding normal performance but across the board when it comes to performance uh um you know the sensory realm uh there's still a lot of room for improvement Mm, mm -hmm. so we can't check that one off just yet okay the next one better brains this is the idea that beyond coffee beyond um (laughs) taking whatever brain enhancement drugs are available this would be the use of uh of of neural implants, of cybernetic enhancements mm-hmm. to upgrade the human mind. And it would have to be a situation where it w- we wouldn't worry about brain doping. This would just right. be the natural thing to do with the available technology. And this
4: is why so many people get excited about uh, transcranial direct stimulation mm-hmm. that I mentioned earlier, the, the possibility of that being the avenue for this.
1: Yeah. So we're seeing some promising developments here, but we're still not quite there. Right. Next, artificial assistance. This would be ubiquitous use of AI and augmented reality in our daily life. I have to say I feel like we're very close on this one because I'm constantly having to drive places Uh, where I put my my phone up there. I use uh, Waze or another Uh map-based program, and it's thinking for me, and it's displaying a, a version of reality That I'm depending on to get somewhere in real life. Oh yeah,
4: totally. Same for me. Like I have gotten horrible, especially since moving to the city of Atlanta at like learning uh, my way around the city on my own because Mm -hmm. I rely on Google Maps or whatever to tell me how to get there. Uh, maybe if I do it like repeatedly over and over again, it sort of works out that way. But if it's a location that I've never been to before, I don't retain that information because why, why would I?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a natural part of our, our cognitive economy mm-hmm. is that, is that if you can outsource something to another person or another thing, another source, your brain does it yeah. because it, it has a tight shift to maintain. And so
4: the thing about Waze and which I, I think Google bought Waze and incorporated it into Google Maps too. It also tells you information about traffic patterns mm-hmm. that you wouldn't be able to experience through your regular senses. You wouldn't be able to see that far down the road right.
1: to know that there's a roadblock. So you have sort of superhuman information. In a matter of speaking, Waze and these other programs are 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 getting us close to checking off this artificial assistance uh um, Qualifier, But also playing into the better brain idea because we are, you know, augmenting our our, our neural abilities, our cognitive abilities via this external device and its properties. Absolutely. Uh, The next one, number four on this list, is amazing average age, longer life from everyone with a roughly 120-year average lifespan for humans. Okay. So we have a long ways to go on this one. Yeah. But when you start breaking down... Uh, death, mortality into smaller, winnable battles, it does seem more and more likely we could get to that point. Mm. Uh, the next one is responsible reproduction. So this one is very interesting. Yeah. And gets into some of that, uh, the, the Potentially prob- problematic, um, you know, Western rich people telling developing nations not to have babies. Scenario. Right. The sort of this. Uh, the
4: borderline ethics of like, is this like eugenics?
1: Yeah. Talking about superior humans versus inferior humans. So in this uh, scenario, uh, Mukentrick is saying that we would we need to all start treating human reproduction and or parenting as an act to be undertaken by choice and uh, and responsibly rather than as a mere biological occurrence. Uh, and the obvious benefits here are, you know, global population woes, yeah. uh, you know, the swelling of orphanages, many a troubled home life. And. Um, because I mean, seriously, what what sort of selfish moron is going to think him or herself futuristic and evolved with the robot eyes if they're still blind to social horrors that arguably stem from all these overpopulation woes and right. unwanted birth? So that's like sort of taking the
4: biohacking thing to like the a larger scale. It's sort yeah. of like a um, population hacking.
1: Yeah, really. And if you think of human the human population is kind of the meta-organism. It's saying, not only am I going to... Let's let's not only take control... Of the individual organism, let's take control of the meta organism, its form, its function. Let's streamline it as well. Yeah. But then, how do you get into that scenario without getting into eugenics, without getting into imperialist, um, you know, dogma? Oh, yeah,
4: yeah, absolutely. It's it sounds very like a dangerous road to go down. But it also reminds me, I see this on Facebook all the time. Uh, I have friends who don't have kids, and they'll say something along the lines of. You know you have to have a license to drive a car. you should probably <laughs> have to have a license to have a kid. Um,
1: and this is basically that, right? Yeah. So there's plenty of plenty of room for argument and hurt feelings and strong mm-hmm. emotions on this one. Oh, yeah. And speaking of which, uh, number six, uh, Mumkindrick refers to as my body my choice. So obviously, you need to own your body in order to augment it, right. That means voluntary self-surgery. Ownership of what your body does and how it's defined. And this is really getting into the
4: regulation aspect of like whether or not the government's going to get involved.
1: Yeah, because think about, you know, to, v- to varying degrees in different countries, how much control the in, the, the, the government already has over your body mm. and what say you have already concerning your body. So this gets into everything from sexuality to reproduction to abortion, physical augmentation and. Um, some oh, of the limits, you know, the, the natural progression of this, too, is going to go down to the vaccination route. Yeah, indeed. I mean, that's mm-hmm. that's another an, another, um, um, you know, face of this problem. Yeah. Um, I mean, on the surgery side, we see this a lot, too. We see individuals who want something dramatic, but they can't go to just a normal surgeon to get it done. Right. Um, and no anesthesia. Right. <laughs> uh, it reminds me a lot of the work of plastic surgeon Joe um, Rosen, who I've brought up here before okay this guy uh, is a huge advocate of like let people be what they want to be yeah through plastic surgery plastic surgery allows us to change the body and therefore change the yeah, soul if you want to be a tiger
4: right like the is, isn't that one of them the tiger man is like the mm-hmm. big body modifier uh, i think he might have passed away actually but you know what i'm talking about yeah. right like he like modified so he had
1: fangs and cat eyes and kind of um uh, stripes on his skin yeah like one of the examples that rosen always brings up is why is it okay for someone to walk in and say i want bigger breasts yeah and they can make that happen but if you say you want blue nipples that's right. too far for some reason exactly. <laughs> you know why yeah, yeah, yeah. so we have to that's that's another hurdle to really uh embracing this transhuman mm-hmm. um notion mm-hmm and then finally, the seventh uh, uh caveat on uh, Kyle McKentrick's list is person, not people. So this is the idea that we're going to have to depend more on concepts of personhood rather than mere human rights. So we're talking gorillas, dolphins, robots, computer AIs, because if we're going to step beyond and outside of the traditional human experience, we need to, you know, have rights and stuff. New humans need to be people, too, even if they have thumb drives and wings. This is
4: 100% what that eclipse phase game is all about. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I think it's... I think it's a really interesting, like it's interesting as a game, but it's also just like an interesting like site to go to and kind of read through what they're working on there for their fictional reality. Just because like it's addressing questions like this and saying like, well, okay, if we, uh, if we take a gorilla or a dolphin and, uh, we give it, uh, an enhanced intelligence and then we upload it into a human body, does it have rights?
1: Interesting. Wow, that's now I'm just trying to imagine the the dolphin human yeah gorilla hybrid
4: body. Oh yeah, yeah. there's all kinds of weird ways to go with mm-hmm. it. But I mean, some of it's science fiction. But as we've revealed here today, I mean, we're on our way towards this stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, like all great science fiction, science fiction echoes the the, the our contemporary fears, yeah. hopes, uh, and dreams concerning our current technology, our current science.
4: All right. So that about wraps it up. Uh, but I want to know from you guys out there, talk to us, write into us, let us know, would you do some of these things? Would you put magnets in your fingertips or would you drop night vision goo into your eyeballs, uh, you know, or would you like a uh, hook up? some sensors to your body so you could feel your wife's sensation of pleasure and pain. Yeah. Are those things that you would be interested in? And also here's the thing that I want to know. What did we miss? Because there is this whole biohacker community out there that like we barely scratched the surface of and i'm sure there's lots of cool stuff going on out there that if you're a biohacker and you're out there listening you're like oh these guys they don't know what a bunch of squares they they completely missed <laughs> all this cool stuff but let us know yeah. right into
1: us tell us what you just finished doing to your forearm or your exactly. your, your, your new foot
4: yeah yeah so What are the ways to do that? Well, you can start with social media. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. We're on Tumblr. We're on Instagram. On all of those, we are Blow the Mind. You can also visit us at our mothership, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you're going to find all of our podcasts, all of our videos, the articles and galleries and lists and all that stuff that we put together. And then there's the final
1: place, the final frontier, (laughs) where you can write to us. And what's that, Robert? That's right. You can always send us an email at blow the mind at howstuffworks.com.
3: For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.